Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Join us at the Sonic Cinema Patreon for, at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. For $3 or more, you get content such as exclusive pre- previews of the book that I'm writing, looks at reviews before they show up on Sonic Cinema for older movies, and uh, much more, including in, inclu- including uh, in-depth looks at uh, pieces that I've written over the years. That is at patreon.com backslash sonicsema. I'm pleased today to be joined once again by a uh, friend and filmmaker, uh, Chris Esper. His most recent film, Imposter, is starting to make the rounds, and it's a wonderful short film. It's one of my favorite films of 2018 so far. Today, uh, we are following up a series, a couple of podcasts that he and I have already done on Martin Scorsese's Faith Trilogy, as well as the work of Andrei Tarkovsky, which came out earlier this year, with another look at a filmmaker that we both really admire, and that is the French New Wave uh, critic-turned-filmmaker Francois Truffaut. Uh, He of The 400 Blows, Stolen Kisses, Day for Night, The Green Room, and many more. Uh, We'll be talking a little bit about a couple of specific movies, but we'll also be delving into some of his other movies for a uh, larger perspective on his work in general. So please uh, join me in welcoming to Back to the Podcast, Chris Esper. Today I'm pleased to be joined once again by a writer-director who's, um, who I've come to know quite a bit through uh, his work as well as his uh, frequent uh, appearances on the podcast. This, I think, is his fourth now. Uh, and uh, he just uh, started uh, screening for critics his short film, Imposter, which is really wonderful if you have a chance to see it. Um, by all means, see, it is one of my favorite films of the year so far. And uh, today we are going to be discussing, similar to our uh, Scorsese our Scorsese discussion as well as our Tarkovsky discussion, we're going to be discussing a filmmaker that we both really admire and some films of theirs that we uh, really admire. And uh, please join me in uh, welcoming Chris Esper back to the podcast. Chris, good to see you again. Yeah, good to be back again. Always enjoy uh, discussing directors and films with you. So, yeah, it's always wonderful. Yeah, and I, I really like that this has sort of become a uh, regular thing for us. I mean, you're you're going to be joining me uh, next year on uh, something that I'm doing with uh, 1999 films, and uh, we're going to be discussing a couple of the really interesting ones there. Mm. And uh, so I'm really I'm really looking forward to those discussions. Um, but today we are here to discuss one of the uh, one of the more popular filmmakers, I think, as far as world cinema when it comes to American audiences. I know for me, I mean, my my first, I think, and I think probably, I would imagine both of us probably have the same uh, first um, introduction to Francois Truffaut in that he played a supporting role in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yep. Um, by that point, he had been well-regarded as a critic of the French New Wave turned filmmaker with filmmakers like the uh, with films like uh, The 400 Blows and Shoot the Piano Player, Jules and Jim, um, Stone Kisses, Day for Night, uh, some of which we're going to be discussing uh at relative length today, uh, before before we uh, sort of dive into the conversation, um, other than uh, Close Encounters, which is kind of an easy one for both of us, what what was your first uh, experience with Truffaut as a director? So this is fascinating. Um, so <clears throat> so obviously, Close Encounters was my first exposure. At the time, having not known who Francois Truffaut even was, I remember his character stood out to me very much, though. Mm-hmm. That was one of those, that movie I remember standing out. But by uh, having done research on him and realizing that he was not only a 
an actor of sorts, uh, but he was primarily a director and film critic. And then from there, I had read his interview with Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. uh, which I have. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's like just 300 pages of like cinephile greatness. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But as far as di- uh, directors go, I think my first, the first film I ever saw of his was in fact Day for Night. That was my first mm-hmm. exposure to and I've come to see some of his other films, such as The 400 Blows, uh, which is his first film, of course, and it's beautiful and fabulous, and yeah. just all across the board, just a fantastic movie, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think my first, I think my first film of his, I, I still, I've not, I've not sat down to read Hitchcock Truffaut yet, but I do, I do own the book, I just haven't had a chance to read it. I did yeah. see the uh, documentary from a couple of years ago, which was oh, fascinating. Yes. yes. Um, I, and it made me even more curious to actually read the book. Uh, yeah. And I, I love the, the thing that I think is so identifiable, so recognizable with Truffaut, and one of the things that made him such an impactful director on a lot of fans, as well as filmmakers like Spielberg, is the fact that he was very much affectionate towards uh, the old school filmmakers. I mean, yes. it's it's well known that he, you know, and that's one of the things that was so unique about the French New Wave is the fact that it, him, along with Jean-Luc Godard and uh, André Bazin, who was the uh, founder of Cashier de Cinema, uh, mm-hmm. they, they basically elevated the director as basically the author of the... Uh, of the movie with with their uh, auteur theory, and I think that's one of the things that was always so accessible with Truffaut. And one of the things you you I mean, there's a famous quote where you know he he said that he demands that a film basically it it basically reveal the joy of making films or the agony of making films. He's not really interested in anything in between. Right. Um, and that that really does come through in all of his films. Uh, oh yes, it it's funny because of the fact that your first one was Day for Night. Day for Night is actually one that I just I had to watch uh, for the sake of this episode, which is one. And uh, the we'll go ahead and start to uh, get into Day for Night, which is an absolutely wonderful film. I yes, I'm not sure it, it's. It's up there with. It's definitely one of my favorite uh, Truffaut films. Definitely, I maybe even my favorite one. After I, uh, seeing it for the first time, I always I I have a soft spot when it comes to uh, movies about making movies, and I yeah. uh, I mean that's always fun to see different people uh, riff on that idea, and Truffaut really does an interesting job with it. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, just just a minute. I'm having some technical issues here before we get into that. The the thing that's so great about Day for Night as a fan of film is that it's it's a movie about the art of making movies. And playing people played with that idea. Uh, Fellini with Eight and a Half. There's The Bad right. and the Beautiful. There's something like Bowfinger. There's Ed Wood. There's so many... Uh, Disasters was another one sure. most recent. Um, it's 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 a very it, it feels like it's a, something that a lot of filmmakers really enjoy digging digging into. And one of the fun things is seeing how those different filmmakers uh, approach it. And the the thing that I like about Truffaut's film, other than the fact that he uh, he he decided to make himself the stars a uh, as the director of the film being made is it it plays very much like a documentary right. and if you didn't necessarily know that it was a narrative feature it would it would work as you would almost swear it was a documentary about the making of a film it's so natural oh yeah i completely agree that was I remember my first time seeing it and thinking and thinking this is like a documentary, just the way the camera moved and just the way the actors were interacting with each other. It just, it, it just didn't feel like a narrative 
picture. It felt like a uh, that we were seeing this actually happen and yeah. and seeing it unfold. And to be fair, the film that's within the film is very much a Truffaut-esque kind of film. Me, Pamela. It is very mm-hmm. much sort of Jules and Jim sort of style where it is a love triangle just like Jules and Jim is, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, so you have this uh, really interesting duality and I can't help but feel like that Truffaut in that movie is really just playing himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he he's... I mean, Close Encounters, you see how very natural he is in front of the camera. And, I mean, Day for Night came out before Close Encounters. Right. He, he is such a natural actor. It's like, it's one of the... And it's actually something... Uh, the fact that he's the lead in the film sort of plays into the other film of his that we're going to be discussing at length uh, today, where he's also the star of that movie. Right. And he's he's... It's such in he he would if he wasn't a director he would be a fascinating character actor. Oh yeah, and I think With, he would make a really successful career as a character actor. That's how natural he is as as an actor in all of the movies that he he appears in. I mean that goes yeah. with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes. Yeah. No. I I totally agree. And and uh, the whole movie had a very for me, a very sort of uh, familial type of quality to it, where everybody on the set they felt like members of a family. That's how that's how it is when you really are making a movie. At least from my experience, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's one of the movies that I watch when I'm prepping for a movie because I just need that inspiration. Even though the, as we see in the movie, their production within it is you know breaks down. There's plagued with problems and yeah. issues. You know, without giving too much away, but uh, you know, yeah. there is a, there is definitely there is a plot twist that mm-hmm. that certainly affects the making of the film within the film, and they have to find a workaround for it. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's it's a thing it's a thing that you always dread as a as a director. And there's one and there's one scene in particular which I've always loved, and I quoted it in my book, The Filmmaker's Journey, when when Truffaut is walking around the studio lot. And all these people are coming up to him, asking him questions and making requests. And he's just in his mind talking about what it means to be a director. That, yeah. that, is, that scene is just fabulous. And that scene totally encompasses what it truly means to be a director. And I felt that time and time again and still do because it's, just, it's really true. As he says that it's like, it's like taking a uh, vacation somewhere, but you never reach a destination. That's really what it's like. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I love. I mean, it makes sense that Truffaut's the director here. I mean, really, nobody else could play that role in yeah. in this particular movie. I, I think some of my favorite beats of his, uh, one is at the very beginning when they're trying to figure out a car for an accent they're supposed to do online. Yes, on on screen and. He he points to the production manager's car and he says, "I don't think he'll mind." That's, that's one of my favorite lines, and it's like it's one of my favorite moments. And something that really stood out to me is really kind of hilarious. And yeah, because it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, I could I could see a director I I could see a director just saying that. It's like, oh, he won't mind. Like, he won't mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and also the scenes dealing with the pregnant actress. And the yes. way they work around that, and that's yep. that's one of the, and and that's one of those uh, really entertaining things. And the thing that I kept going going back to, and I forgot this movie when I was talking about movies about making movies. I wonder whether David Mamet had this film in mind when he made State and Maine. Oh yes, because structurally it's very similar. It There's is very, a yeah, lot. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of similar beats played between the two movies. I I certainly think. Both of her fantastic movies. If you haven't seen State Maine, it's well worth checking out. Yeah, um, yeah, without And it's it's really hilarious, and it's it it's another example of how different filmmakers find different things. And it's like it's it's amazing to me that Truffaut uh, made made this film. And it's like we we're talking about him being the director, and he's very much the star of it. But ultimately, this is an ensemble film, and that's something that really, uh, that really impressed me about it. Is that nobody really, even though we're pointing to Truffaut a lot of the ways, and uh, Jacqueline Bisset is in it, and uh, Jean Pierre 
Loud, who was in 400 Blows and Stolen oh, Kisses. Yep. Um, those are basically the main characters in the movie. Nobody really outshines everybody else, and just no. everybody is so wonderful in this movie. I agree, yeah. I, I think, if anything, Truffaut, as an actor in the movie, is sort of a supporting character, and he's he's sort of the glue that keeps these people together, if anything else. I mean... I, I, and the film, and your film, you're right, is filled with like just a lot of just hilarious moments. Like the scene where they're trying to get the cat to lick the milk, and they can't yes. get the cat. Can't get the, <laughs> oh my god, that scene had me rolling. It's funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at the same time, you've got this one scene uh, early on where they're trying to get um, Severine to get a scene right. Mm -hmm. And she and we start to see that there's something pretty serious that she's dealing with that's very personal. Yes. And the way that Truffaut brings that out and the fact that that scene works on so many different levels. It does. And and why she isn't quite able to get that scene just right and why what's bothering her and the way just everything about the way Truffaut shoots that scene is just it's beautiful, and it shows a lot of respect on a lot of levels. Yeah. And uh, and and another thing that I point out that I wrote down that I really liked is uh, when when you see the little moments where the actors are talking to reporters and stuff like that, and they're yeah. all talking about what they think the movie is about, and it, right. they're basically just seeing it from their character's point of view. It's like that's, that's right. It's so it's so perfect and just so indicative of how uh, actors are when it comes to the yeah the the type of movie that they're making. So right, right, and and it goes back to what you said about it being like a documentary because a lot of the behaviors that each character exhibits is that of of what you witness on any movie, be it an, uh, be it an independent picture or a, uh, or, or, or a um, Hollywood production or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's certainly just very similar. The director is there just trying to get his vision on screen or her vision on screen. And here you have all these cast of characters and there's, you know, there's sort of a, there's sort of a story or a movie on its own during the making of the movie, because there's just so much that goes into it. And I love those, uh, those uh, little moments. I agree. Uh, and also too, uh, we also can't forget the uh, those really cool flashback sequences uh, when Truffaut is napping, uh, uh, sleeping at night, uh, and uh, it, it, we get we get the black and white scenes with uh, presumably him as a child, the director, yes. Yes. as a child, and and you see him constantly going to the theater, and he eventually takes pictures from uh, uh, Citizen Kane's publicity yes. photo, which is something Truffaut actually did as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he and and with the uh, and he was his his uh, I think it was yeah, and he was one of the first ones who it was with the directors of the French New Wave when you had movies like Citizen Kane and movies like Touch of Evil from Wells really start to take their place as these are some of the great movies of all time, and yeah. it was under their uh, appreciation of the movie. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I like about uh, Day for Night in particular is that Truffaut, and I mean, it really goes back, it really goes to any Truffaut movie, really. I can't yes. say that there's one that I feel like isn't there. I mean, there are still a few that I haven't seen. Yeah. But I feel like Truffaut is a filmmaker who, it's hard for him to be genuinely cool. I, yeah. I think to his actors, I think to his characters, I should say. I yes. think he, he really loves the characters that he is putting on screen and he wants to see them he wants to see them succeed. Yeah. In whatever they're doing, whether it's something like Day for Night, whether it's something like Jules and Jim, whether it's something like <laughs> even Fahrenheit four five one or four hundred blows. I mean, he really has he really has affection for his characters, and that's one of the things that really, I I think is also very representative of him and why so many people uh, respond to him as a filmmaker. Oh yeah, I mean uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because I remember last year discussing with a friend our favorite filmmakers, and um, in my top ten was Truffaut, 
uh, his and my friend's response to me was, yeah, it, my friend's response was, yeah, I never really uh, got into French cinema. I always found French, French cinema to be very cold. And I was like, interesting, because Truffaut, in my opinion, is a very emotional filmmaker, a very personal filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Godard, not, you know, Godard is great, uh, but their, their styles are just, you know, sort of different. Uh, I would say that Truffaut was, uh, certain, certainly has a French sensibility, obviously, without question, but he also mm-hmm. had that. But he also had sort of an American sensibility, I feel like, in his approach to filmmaking, because uh, he loved American cinema. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if, yeah, I mean, if he's, if he was, if your friend's thinking solely about like Godard in that respect when it comes to French cinema, yeah, I can, I can understand where he's coming from as far as thinking that it's kind of cool because as much as what I've seen of Godard is really good. It it yeah. is very cold in comparison to what Truffaut does, and yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like I'm still just very much skimming the surface of the French New Wave and French yeah. cinema in general. It's like there's still uh, gulfs of it that are missing, and I mean that goes for Truffaut as well. I'm probably further sure. along with Truffaut than I am with other filmmakers, but yeah, I mean he he's he's somebody who I I don't know if I would put him in my top 10 but i mean he's he's definitely in my top 20 right now as yeah. far as favorite films like their favorite filmmakers i mean there's such a there's such a warmth to the way he works with actors there's so many such a warmth to the stories that he's telling there's yes. such a uh such a beauty to the way he tells them that yeah. is uh it's really interesting to watch and it although I will say I, I mentioned Fahrenheit four five one earlier. It's yep. it's interesting. I watched Day for Night about a month after I watched Fahrenheit four five one for Sonic Cinema's movie a week. And I wanted to do Fahrenheit four five one this year for Truffaut because of the fact that there was the HBO adaptation with Michael B. Jordan and Michael oh. Shannon coming out. And I won. It's been it had been a while since I had seen Fahrenheit four five one. Actually, Fahrenheit four five one was my first Truffaut. Oh, but it's weird because of the fact that I don't watching it again. I don't feel like it's as much of a Truffaut film as like Four Hundred Blows as Day for Night. It's a very different watch. Yeah. It feels like you're watching a completely different filmmaker. Yeah, I I gotta I. That's interesting because I have yet to check. I have to. I have yet to see that one. But uh, but uh, but I but 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 having said that, uh, Truffaut certainly does have a style, film to film. You can watch like Four Hundred Blows. You can watch The Green Room. You can watch uh, Day for a Night, Jules and Jim. All of those. You can tell who the filmmaker is. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's really interesting watching Fahrenheit Four Five One where. It's it's very obvious that he has interest in the material, but he's also I feel like he struggles with the material as well. And I think but watching having seen the HBO movie as well, I feel like that might be the material in general. Yeah. Because neither of them are overly successful. I think Truffaut probably gets it a bit closer. The problem, yeah. the biggest problem with Truffaut's film is, for me, is that it's it's very obvious that the technology and the means did not exist to do a futuristic vision for yeah. the movie. It's sure. it's very obvious. It's like nineteen sixties France or England or wherever he filmed sure. it. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, of course, we we completely. Uh, and so you haven't seen Fahrenheit four five one. I am curious to see what you think about it. Yeah, I'll uh, have to, when you do I'll get have to watch it. See it. Yeah. Um, I I don't think either adaptation is overly successful. I think both of them do interesting things with the material, but I don't think either one has quite gotten it. I think part of it is almost the material in general. Yeah, that, that might be that might be a story that might be best. Uh, told on the page as opposed to on screen yeah that makes that makes sense i mean some some uh, adaptations of books to film 
sort of suffer with that, where the ideas are either just way too big for for film, or that or the or the director just simply didn't get the material that's within the text of the mm-hmm. book. So yeah. yeah, that could be a very that could be a very uh, tough. Um, challenge uh i'm sure for Truffaut, it was probably something that was just like a territory that he didn't that he probably wasn't even sure how to had co- to cover if that sort of makes sense you know yeah. yeah i yeah and i would almost i would almost say that i i understand why he chose that i, I understand why he did and i mean it was it was a universe if i remember correctly it was a universal production so i mean it was a yeah. studio film so it was something that obviously he was seeing about getting his uh, foot in the door when it came to Hollywood. And, of course, the next year, uh, he was, around that time, he was actually, he was one of the original choices for Bonnie and Clyde, to direct Bonnie and Clyde, uh, before Arthur Penn ended up making that movie. Sure. And if you think about it, it's like, that would have been, I think if he had been able to make that, I think, it, it's interesting to see where his career will have gotten after that. Yeah. Because I think that movie really will have been... That, that's a movie that's more up his alley, I think, as far as that type of filmmaking. Yeah. And, I mean, you see you see things in... Uh, it's been years since I've seen, seen Shoot the Piano Player, so yeah. I know a friend of mine absolutely loves that film. But you look at Jules and Jim, you look at the fact that it's like so many of his movies are character-driven... Yes. And more about the story of the characters as opposed to larger uh, society ideas, and I think that's that's where Bonnie and Clyde would have been a better fit than Fahrenheit four five one. Yeah, uh, no, I can definitely see that. I mean, and uh, I mean, honestly, I mean, you're talking about the time that's like you know, Bonnie and Clyde came out in '67. I want to say, yep. and so yeah, so you have, so you're sort of on the cusp of the American art tour where the American director was in full control of the money and full control of the movie mm-hmm. and there was no and there was no studio interference. Francois Truffaut would have fit that system in there like a glove. He would have yeah. just been perfect for that for that specific uh, mm-hmm. era had he been in America, you know. And it's interesting to think of yeah, and it's interesting to think of what his career would have been like. I mean, what would Imagine him in the same. Imagine him playing uh, the French New Wave, which basically decided that the author, the director, was in fact the author of the film. And then right. you have the American filmmakers inspired not just by that idea, but by the filmmakers that the French New Wave were That's uh, right. discussing. I mean, the fact that one of somebody like Truffaut straddling both of those key points in cinema history is fascinating. Yeah. And I mean you really you you wish that you wish he had w- might have gotten the chance, but at the same yeah. time you you also you you look at some of the films he made in that point after like Fahrenheit 451, after Bounty and Clyde came out, you have Stolen Kisses, which is yeah. terrific. You have Day for Night, which is terrific as well. Yep. And I think The Wild Child is in there, which I have not seen yet. I haven't um, seen that one. But uh, And then you have a uh, really curious film, and uh, one that I, I was fascinated by when Roger Ebert brought up in his great movies review of The 400 Blows, um, called The Green Room. Yes. And it's based on a Henry James novel. And uh, it is is basically, it stars once again Francois Truffaut, and it is it, he is a person who is fascinated by death. Yeah, he he is fascinated by the dead, and he feels a kinship to the dead in a way that he doesn't really feel towards humans. Yeah, and he and one of the things that was so interesting in that. Uh, Ebert mention of the movie in the 400 Blows review was the fact that he quoted a uh, another critic, I can't remember the name of the critic, who basically said that he he looked at the green room as Truffaut's um 
Simak representation of the auteur theory of and you know Truffaut basically being the auteur uh, of this the person that he was and somebody who revered these filmmakers who had passed and these filmmakers yes. who had had their time who had in, lit the flame for him and keeping their spirit alive. And that's really. Yeah, that's fa- that's really fascinating because mm-hmm. upon watching it, my I, I didn't mean to cut you off. By no, the you're way. fine. You're fine. But um, upon watching it myself, because I know this was his last re- uh, released film, I want to say because I because I know he did he did attempt to film a movie before his death called Finally Sunday. I don't think it ever got completed though. But um, uh, so I sort of think of this as like almost like he knew in a way that this was going to be his last film. I, I like I just had that on my mind as I was watching it mm-hmm. and seeing how that movie unfolded. It is just like, it's his most touching and most somber film that I've seen of his. Uh, yeah. And it's, and I mean that in the best of ways, cause mm-hmm. it's like the most emotional, the most, uh, you know, it's a shame that uh, it didn't do good numbers at the box office, but the critics loved it. Yeah. And it's really, and actually he did have uh, the last Metro after this. That's right. Yes. The last okay. Metro came out after this. I'm not, I want to say he had one more in there, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, that's uh, right. But sad, sadly, yeah, this was one of his last films, and Truffaut left us way too early in 1984 because of yeah. uh, brain cancer. Brain cancer, and, yeah. And uh, I, I really am curious to see what he will have done uh, in his later years, whether he would have... Because the green room, I I had forgotten a lot of. I re, I remembered how I felt about the green room. I'd forgotten yeah. a lot about the fact that it feels very, the feel of it is very out of character for Truffaut when, especially when you compare it to like Day Day for Night or yeah. Jules and Jim or Four Hundred Blows. It feels it's interesting. It feels like a Tarkovsky film. It feels like I, a Bergman film. I was just I was just gonna say there are specific shots in the movie that felt very Tarzowski, that felt very Bergman. In particular, there's a dolly shot mm-hmm. uh, when he first brings um, uh, Cecilia to the chapel, and the camera does this really beautiful tracking shot. You see the candles, you see the gate, you see the gates in the foreground, and it felt like something I had nostalgia, yeah, or out of or even out of Stalker uh, in a way. It just felt like a very Tarzowski kind of shot, mm-hmm. very. And the story is very Bergman-esque because Bergman did a lot of stories about death, about life, and so yes. this movie this movie felt like that, but uh, but with Truffaut at the helm, and man, does he pull it off? Yeah, and and one of the things I I found interesting rewatching it is that I I and I wrote down I I feel like this is a character with post traumatic stress disorder. Oh yes, and it's not because of the fact that he dies, but it's almost but it's because he's the only one who lives. And right. it, that goes back to the montage at the beginning of the movie, which is a montage of war footage. And yeah. this character who writes obituaries for a living basically is the only one of his friends who survived, uh, I'm guessing, World War II is yeah. the, the war that he survived. Yep. And uh, so it's it's really interesting. And this is part of where he... And he's talking about the fact that it's like he feels like he know he's he knows more people who have died than have that are alive. And right. I we all we all get to that point at a certain point in our lives that sure. when you know it feels like we know more people who have passed on than more people who are currently survive alive. And and the way that Truffaut brings this to the screen is. It's really beautiful, and it's really there. There's a scene in um. There, there's a tension in terms of. There are two main tensions in the film that I think are fascinating. There's the tension that comes up when it comes to him writing the obituary for his former yeah. friend, best friend, but yeah. there's also the tension in the way he and Celia view the living and the dead. They both have very specific interests in death, yes. but they approach it very differently. And the way he chastises it 
it's it's fascinating because of the fact that especially watching watching movie watching the movie again in the current uh social media um time that we're currently at where fandom if you're taking this as a representation of the auteur theory this that that scene with he and Celia and those clashing heads between them of how they view this similar thing is very similar to how you have people online who completely are vehemently disagreeing on movies. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so weird to see that represented so beautifully in in a way that you never really would subscribe to a filmmaker like Truffaut, but it's also, I mean, it does feel very much like a natural progression for Truffaut. It does obviously feel like a film made when he was starting to think of his own mortality. I don't know when exactly he was diagnosed from brain cancer. This came out in 1978. So, I mean, it could be they knew at that point, but he no doubt knew that he he probably knew that he was closer to the begin end of his life than the beginning, and right. being able to and when you see film when you see life that way, it really does shift your perspective. And I I just man, I fell in love with this movie all over again. I was oh yeah, I, I was, and yeah, we were you know it's like last week we were talking about like last week I I basically had to sort of. I I had to do something. I had to basically burn my copy of this disc for you and send it yeah. to you so you could That's, watch it because it's not available. Yeah. And that blows my mind that a it, true film yeah. is basically unavailable right now. Except yeah, I. That's that's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, that's unbelievable. I mean, I mean, uh, who uh, who um, what company put out the DVD copy that you have? MGM. Okay. MGM. Okay. And it's I got it shortly after I think it came out because it was oh. fascinated by it and nobody had available, so I bought it on Amazon. It was relatively inexpensive. Yeah, I mean it doesn't have anything on it but the movie, and uh, you know that was like seven eight years ago or something like that. And so the the fact that when when you and I were going back and forth about it, how you were having a hard time tracking it down i'm like i look on amazon and sure enough like it's not available except for being prohibitively expensive yeah, oh and yeah region free and so it's i'm really kind of curious to see if criterion picks it up at some point i'm kind of surprised they haven't picked it up by this point i i am too because um haven't seen it for the first time this week uh I finished it. And I was like, "How has this not been uh, picked up by Criterion yet?" Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a beautiful movie. Well, and the the fact of the matter is, it's taking them like out of seventeen, eighteen years or so to finally uh, reissue Andre Rublev on Blu-ray. Sure. So um, I'm, you know, if if it takes a couple of years for them to get their hands on it it's like i'm not going to complain especially yeah. considering what we're about to get with uh andre rublev which i'm terribly excited for because that is that set looks that says everything i could have hoped for yeah yeah like the only the only thing i kind of wish i mean not to get on a tarkovsky tangent but i'm i'm, I'm kind of curious i i kind of almost wish because they're showing, they're doing both the 205 minute original cut yep. that they released originally, and then the 185 cut, which was actually the one that Tarkovsky appro- officially endorsed. He officially oh. endo- ended up endorsing that one. Yeah, cut, and it's been a while since I've seen that shorter cut. So I'm curious to see that. I really kind of wish they had also tracked down the two hour and 25 minute American release of it. And I, I'm the only reason I'm curious about that one is I don't think it's probably going to be a good movie at all. I'm just fascinated by what that would look like yeah. as a two and a half hour movie. Right. And I'm, I'm just curious about that, but 
yeah, I mean that that's coming out in September from Criterion. I cannot oh, wait. Fantastic. And I cannot wait to finally own that on high definition on Blu-ray. It's like that. I'm so excited by the release. But I mean, yeah, I I hope Criterion gets their hands on Green Room. I would imagine they will because I mean today they just announced out of nowhere a huge uh, Bergman box set with like really? basic yeah with like every one of his films wow including ones that they hadn't had before like Hour of the Wolf like Persona like and Cerebon his his last film and so I'm really and it goes it it basically has every everything on there. And it's like I'm. I would imagine it's only a matter of time before they get their hands on Green Room. I hope it's sooner rather than later because I would I love so to see. Yeah. I would love to hear uh, dis discussion of would of this. I would love to maybe see interviews with Truffaut about the movie. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like there would be you know ones done at the time, but it's like I would love to know more. I would love to hear different perspectives on this movie because it's oh, yeah. such a beautiful film. It's such a fascinating film in his in in his career. And it yeah. is one where like you said, I mean, it it really does feel like somebody at the end of his life or realizing that his life is um is he's he's closer to the end of his life than Right. to the beginning of his life and yeah. i'm really i i i love it i'm i'm glad i revisited for the uh podcast because of the fact that i hadn't seen it in a number of years and i yeah. i kind of fell in love with it all over again i fell in love with it uh at first sight i mean it was just uh it, 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 it really it's uh there was just so much to look at visually and the the and some of the dialogue that he writes, um, yeah. well, from the translation that I read, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's just like some really beautiful dialogue. I love the line where he said, "I love the uh, not to give anything away, but the ending where she writes the letter, and she says, you, uh, you'll only love me if I were to be dead.'" Mm -hmm. That just, I, I was just like, "Whoa!" And, and like, there's just like beautiful piece of dialogue like that. But not only that, but there's also a great scene. The way he shoots this one particular scene, he goes to an artist who's made a wax figure of his of his deceased wife. Yes, and he looks at it, won't accept it, and then asks the asks the artist to destroy it. Rather than going in for close ups and we get the and we get this you know really over dramatic thing, mm -hmm. he cuts for a wide shot through a window, and it was just like that that moment actually had me more emotional than it would have been if had everything had been done in close up oh, with yeah. intent. Yeah, no, and and yeah, that was that was, and yeah, I I'd almost forgot about that scene, and yeah, that that is a, it's, and yeah, that line of dialogue is absolutely true about um his character and that the idea that he he loves people who are deceased more than he loves people who are alive, and yeah. like one of the things that I think is so interesting about the movie and so interesting about his character is the fact that I I feel like. To a certain extent, I think most everybody has these moments where we we find ourselves more attached to people who may have passed on than we do to people who are still living. And yeah. the fact that he's just given himself over to that feeling, and when you think about the fact that he's had to mourn his wife, has, he's had to mourn most of his friends, you understand where that's coming from, but he's also yeah. forgotten that you you know it's like even though he's still alive he's forgotten to live and that's yeah. that's that's one of the things that i think is that's part of where the uh tension comes from in that movie and it's so uh beautiful i agree and and the movie also raises some very interesting questions such as is this character or do we as people do we only uh remember the good things about said person that passed away and do we erase all the negative stuff about them or do we retain that, you know, and like his character, it's interesting because there's this one particular character from his childhood that he, that, that he felt betrayed by, mm -hmm. although the, although the movie doesn't get into how the betrayal happened, very much, but, uh, but, but yet despite this person's death, he still feels hatred towards this person. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, uh, 
interesting thing where like okay like even after death uh he can't forgive this one person mm-hmm. and yeah that's and and that that is actually an excellent point that's the person that he's he's asked actually been asked by his uh editor to write mm-hmm. an obituary for and he has a hard time with it and when he does write the obituary it's very brutal and harsh yes Yes. And uh, it's 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 not really that much of a surprise they would choose that lifestyle given that that career given uh, what what he's doing. It's based on a Henry James uh, story. Yeah. Um, the Altar of the Dead, I believe, is the uh, story. Although I think there's another one. It's their elements based on. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, and and that that. That whole tension, it just plays into exactly what we're talking about is the idea of, you know, do, and you're exactly right. It's like, how much do we, when we think about people who've died, how much do we, what do we think about? And that's, yeah. I, I think that's an important part of remembering them. And yeah. I, I think, I think it's important to distinguish, well, what are we, what are we holding on to with regards to those people and how are we remembering them and how are we, how, how was the best way to remember them? Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there, there are so many different movies and it's like, I've, you know, it's like it, at this point, my, all my grandparents have passed on. My father sure. passed away almost five years ago. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you do, you, you, do wonder how you know i i've had i've had bouts of you know with with regards to my father's parents it's like i missed them of course but i didn't really have too many memories that i held on to with them with my mother's parents it was different and i think i was probably closer to them than i was to sure um my father's parents and then with my dad, it's like it you you start to wonder because you know my father you know we we had we had a few years when I was in Boy Scouts that we were probably the closest we've ever been yeah but at the same time there are also other things that I remember and so it's like do I remember the estrangement uh, not not necessarily estrangement but do I remember the moments where it's like we weren't maybe as close as we could have been, or do I hold on to the moments that do matter to me and that were important to me as far as our, you know, as, as far as our relationship together. And that's, yeah. that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Truffaut's character and what he's doing and what Truffaut as a filmmaker is doing with this film. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, and it's, it's something that, I mean, if, for for filmmakers, I I've you know I've got to think it's 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 fascinating and it's like when, if you know the history of Truffaut, you know the history of how much he loves cinema, how much he loves mm-hmm. directors, how much he lionized directors like Hitchcock, yeah. like Wells. It makes sense they would make a movie like this, and oh, it's yeah. almost he's almost putting a mirror up to himself and making sort of holding himself in check. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And on that point about his love for cinema and the fact that um, that the movie has been seen as a representation of him lighting a candle of sorts mm-hmm. uh, for the filmmakers that he once loved in bringing up the scene where he writes an obituary uh, that is brutal about his, about his childhood best friend. Uh, Mind you, if you think about Truffaut's reality, by this time, him and Godard were no longer friends because mm-hmm. after, after Day for Night had been released and Godard thought it was like a, an inaccurate depiction of filmmaking, but more importantly of Truffaut because he, he felt he felt that, oh, you know, this was autobiographical. Why didn't the director in the movie kiss his female leads? <laughs> and, you know, definitely alluding to uh, Truffaut's own personal affairs. And so... In response, Truffaut wrote a letter to Godard, basically calling him a piece of shit, and <laughs> and uh, that ended their friendship and partnership. So I almost wonder if that was even, in a way, 
sort of his autobiographical element of the obituary scene being sort of a, uh, sort of a reference to Godard in that mm-hmm. sense. I don't know. I mean, it could have been. That that's certainly an intro. I mean, that would certainly that would certainly track with uh, with the whole idea. The film is inspired by the auteur theory and yeah. the and uh, in sp- how autobiographical it is probably with Truffaut. And it's like he is he is easily you know. I mean, we haven't even talked about Four Hundred Blows, the yeah. the the films that in that series, which includes Stolen Kisses, yeah. and. Uh, we haven't talked about Jules and Jim yet, which I mean, he he. I would imagine that Truffaut, Truffaut is easily one of the most personal filmmakers in. Without a doubt. I mean, in in filmmaking in in uh, the history of filmmaking. I mean, there are other filmmakers like Scorsese, like Spielberg. Sure. Every filmmaker puts a piece of themselves in a film. Sure. That that I mean, that's that's part of the whole idea of the auteur theory. Is the right. whole idea is that. The director is the author, and the author is basically the author is going to put a piece of themselves into the film That's that they are doing. So, but I mean, I don't know of any other filmmaker though is probably as nakedly uh, personal and authentic with it as Truffaut. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, throughout his films, uh, between the uh, uh, the um uh, the the main character in Four Hundred Blow is the fact that 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 particular character and actor has have reprised roles in his subsequent films yeah. over time. Uh, that certainly says a lot. I think even in a sense, the flashback scene in Day for Night. I think mm-hmm. that character. I think that, I mean, in all his films, there is there is a sense of childhood or a child in his movies that sort of represents a quote a simpler time or a, a, a time of innocence of discovery uh green room there's a young boy that's um um uh that's uh deaf i believe and uh mm-hmm. he he shows him slides and again uh and, he, and again he has a projector there goes again that magic of cinema kind of sort of thrown in there what a subtle mm-hmm. hand it's in there uh and then of course you have uh the flashback uh in day for night again possibly the same character 400 blows uh, there's it, certainly that is Truffaut as a child. He's mentioned time and time again yeah. how 400 Blows was basically a picture of what his childhood was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and him and uh, him and the actor returning to that character over and over again. It's it's like when when people think about uh, Linklater's before trilogy now. Yes, you know, I mean, he wasn't the first person to do that. They weren't the first people to do that. No. Uh, and I mean, yeah, that was one of the things that was. I I love the fact that you've got somebody like Truffaut doing that, and I I love I love the idea of that. I love the idea of checking in with these characters every few years to sort of give us a window into where they are, see who they are at a certain point in their lives, and it's like I'm I'm and of course Michael Apted did this in documentaries with the Up series. Yeah. And I'm, you know, probably a couple more years before we're going to get, we might get another one on that series, but that's going to be interesting to see if we do get 63 out, what that's going to look yeah. like. And, yeah. you know, you, you you watch these movies, you watch these characters as they progress, you see you see who they are, and it's it's, you know, with Truffaut, because of how personal of a filmmaker he is, it's it's not just those specific films. It's every film where it, you're getting a window into who he is at that moment. And I mean, really, you could you could say that about any filmmaker. You can say that about yeah. Scorsese. You can say that about Tarkovsky. You can say that about Bergman. You can say that about Spielberg. You can say that about all of them. And just how different you look at how different Scorsese films were from you know. Taxi Driver to Goodfellas. You see differences right. in Last Temptation of Christ to Silence. You look at yep. Spielberg, you know, when he did Jaws and Close Encounters compared to the Spielberg who made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And then yep. now you've got, you know, Ray yep. Player One and The Post. It's like you've got very different filmmaker each time. The person is the, the individual making is the same, but the person is different. 
Right. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I loved your comparison about uh, the Before series because, uh, you know, in talking about Richard Linklater, uh, you could even say that 400 Blows and the subsequent films, in a way, is sort of like with Boyhood. We saw this little mm-hmm. boy 12 years and with 400 Blows to Stolen Kisses and Love at 20 uh, and all those other Truffaut films with the same leading character. We saw this young man grow up into uh, um, and uh, to, to the man that we saw in like Day for Night, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and the, it, the thing that was so striking is how close, how much that actor, I uh, can't remember what, I'm not even going to try to yeah. say his name because I know I'll mess it up. It, yeah. It's striking just in Day for Night just how much he very much, especially seeing him and Linklater and Truffaut in scenes together is striking just how much like a young Truffaut he looks. I was just going to say, yeah, he doesn't get <laughs> I mean, Truffaut. if you didn't know any better, it's like you would swear that he were Truffaut's son. I yeah, mean, that's and, how and close they look. I agree. And then even his character in Day for Night behaves in a very similar way. That sort of impulsive behavior, mm-hmm. same exact behavior as in 400 Blows. That's so, that same sort of impulsive behavior, how he doesn't think before he does. Uh, and that's exactly what the character 400 Blows was like. Yeah. Well, I know, did you uh, get a chance to rewatch Jules, Jules and Jim? Not recently, no. Okay. All right. Yeah, I I last I saw it for the first time a few months ago. I think yeah, it was in December actually. Yeah. And uh yeah, it's 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 a really good film. I I wouldn't I wouldn't put it up there with Day for Night or Green Room. Or, no, I wouldn't either. No. Um but it's an interesting film. I love the way he I love the way he approaches the characters. I love the way he approaches the uh dynamics between the characters and uh I, I love that the there's a uh, romantic part to it, but there's also a dark part of it in sort yeah. of how that how that relationship between the three characters plays out. Right. Yeah, I mean they're they're like I said earlier, I haven't seen Shoot the Piano Planner in a few years. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing I, that I, one I, again. Yeah. Um, I want to see Last Metro. I want to see Wild Child. I want to see. I want to mm-hmm. see all of his movies. Oh, me too. I mean, yeah, he's 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 a filmmaker that definitely speaks a lot to me on an individual level. I mean, I I think anybody with a love of film who may not be comfortable with the idea of watching foreign films, I mm. I think Truffaut is probably the easiest entry point. I yeah, he was my first entry into foreign mm-hmm. cinema, along with like films like Cinema Paradiso, which, yeah. uh, which I mean for me is like one of my all time favorites. And uh, it's funny when I first saw Four Hundred Blows, and I you know that I saw Cinema Paradiso. I looked at Cinema Paradiso. There are elements of Cinema Paradiso that feel very much like Four Hundred Blows. Mm-hmm. Certain elements, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I mean, as far as as far as directors, I mean, yeah, definitely Truffaut is the easiest. Uh, entry point. I think, I, but I think I would also, even though it's a very in, it's a very different reason for me saying this one. I would say Kurosawa is another one, uh, just yeah. because in his samurai films, just because of the fact yeah, that American yeah. action films have been taking from Kurosawa for d- decades oh, sure. now. Yeah. So I mean, if if you if you like Star Wars at all, chances are you're gonna be a. Tur- Kurosawa fan in one way or another, whether it's Hidden Fortress or Seven Samurai or uh, yeah. the Jimbo and Sanjuro. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, I feel like I heard that uh, Lucas uh, even uh, took sections of Seven Samurai and, and put it into his rough cut of Star Wars to give yeah. these to give the visual effects guys mm-hmm. a reference for what he wanted. Yeah, uh, for the lightsaber sequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and uh, I mean, there there was an episode of, uh, there were a few episodes of, like, Clone Wars and Rebels, I think, that have basically taken the samurai, uh, seven samurai shape. I mean, you can, once you see Hidden Fortress, if you haven't seen Hidden Fortress, you can tell the references to a new, 
you can definitely see the inspiration on New Hope in there. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I mean, and for crying out loud, like Lucas, uh, helped get along with Coppola, helped get financing for one of his later samurai films, uh, Kagamusha. Yeah. And uh, then you have Ron with and Akira to Kurosawa's Dreams, which actually I was thinking about when we were talking about the Green Room, which is another like late life meditation on life and death which yeah. is just really uh, beautiful and personal from a filmmaker. Yeah. I think that's one of the criterion released well, with, uh, within the last year. It took a while for it to yeah. finally get a release. Yeah. They, yeah, they, they released that last year. Exactly. Last year. Last year or the year before, but yeah, that's yeah. one that I'm definitely looking forward to upgrading because I, I, I think dreams is beautiful. I think dreams is, it's such an amazing visual movie. Yeah, and uh, it's such a striking uh, movie from Kurosawa, and I I would hope I hope one day they get a Madedeo, which was I think that was his last film. Uh, came out a couple of years after Dreams, which <clears throat> is another just wonderful late uh, Kurosawa film. And uh, yeah, I mean we're we're you know I mean we're I know we're supposed to be talking about Truffaut here, but I mean it's always <laughs> you, it, we could always put in. Plugs to Kurosawa and other filmmakers. Oh, sure. I mean, we've talked about Bergman yeah. and Tarkovsky. The yeah. the fact of the matter is, it's like for me, these these filmmakers are formative for me as far as my entry my entry into world cinema, my entry into sort of understanding how different filmmakers view the world, and that's one of the things I yeah. I think is so beautiful about people like Truffaut and the the fact that it's like you feel like you're going to learn something new about the world and maybe even about yourself. I totally movies. I agree, hundred percent. Um well uh thank you very much for uh joining me tonight. Um this I, I really enjoy this conversation. Admittedly yeah, it's like the and when we were talking about this uh this episode after the Tarkovsky one made it made me realize like we this should have been really how we approached Tarkovsky as well, where we just pick a couple of movies and just sort of go to larger discussions as, as needed as far as other films. But, yeah. uh, you know, because I mean, the two films we did choose from Truffaut day for night and green room are so radically different and, oh, yeah. but also very representative of the filmmaker in general. And so I, I know when, when I started thinking about, you know, a couple of friends of mine are doing uh, David Lynch soon, and it's like, well, this 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 structure needs to happen with David Lynch too. Yeah, I mean, they're <laughs> like, if if you just if you just talk about like everything, it's gonna be like six hours, and yeah. that's just Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, Chris, thank you very much for uh, joining oh, thank me you. on this. I'd like to thank Chris for joining me again on the podcast. It's always good to have him on. It's always good to talk to him. Um, we're planning on doing at least one more uh, breakdown, this time of an individual movie, uh, before the end of the year. Hopefully we'll get that going uh, in November or December. And then he's going to be joining me a couple of times on my 2019 uh series looking back on the films of the year 1999 which is a huge ambitious project i'm working on i've already got about 30 movies accounted for i'm really looking forward to all those discussions and i'm really grateful to have filmmakers like chris who are uh willing to uh join me in that that's all for now uh join me again at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema for more and uh until next time, this is Brian Scuttle. We've got a lot more episodes uh, coming this year. This has been a busier than expected uh, summer for the podcast, but it's definitely been a rewarding one. I've got a lot more really good conversations coming up. Uh, thank you very much, and this is Brian Scuttle checking out for the Sonic Cinema podcast. <laughs>